This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter. So after we left you last time, literally just after, the Ming Foon scandal broke. Well, first he resigned, and then he didn't. Then he did. Then he did declare his interests in a certain housing development, apparently, or he said he did. Then apparently uh, he didn't. Who knows? Now, at that point, I thought, right, I know what we're going to talk about this week. But then imagine my utter delight. Delight? Hmm. Maybe the wrong word. Excitement, maybe, when the Prime Minister called a press conference on Wednesday. A gobsmacked, it must be said, Prime Minister saying the good minister, Michael Woods, had in fact found further shares and further conflicts of interest, resulting in said minister, now ex-minister, having a roughly 50% pay cut. Ha! Huh, no choice, Brent Edwards, there. No, no choice. But, I mean, it, it is astounding. I mean, and everyone I talk to... You know, if you'd put a list together after Stuart Nash about who's the next minister to get into trouble, Michael would have would have been at the end of that list, the bottom. And so people are scratching their head, wondering how the hell he got himself into that well, situation. Well, about two beehive banters ago, you remember I said every so there'd be at least another four before the election. Another four? OK, so who... So, well, there's so, only three left. OK, and so then, name, name, name the well, next one. Well, I don't one. need to. Okay. So. Well, because actually they're running out. To be, <laughs> they might even run out before the election. I mean, I think actually, irrespective of these new shareholdings that came up, that he was likely to have lost his job anyway, because once that review of his declarations to the um, parliamentary, you know, pecuniary interests yep. came through, and, it, and he hadn't declared the Auckland airport shares until last year, so yep. there were many years that he didn't declare it. Given they made Ming Foon resign, or they would have, sacked him for not properly declaring his interests, they could hardly have let Michael Wood away with that. And then, of course, these other shareholdings that come to light that... Um, uh, yeah, and you're right. I mean, the Prime Minister was was gobsmacked. He walked in, you could tell, I mean, just how frustrated he was. And as he said, he still hasn't got a an explanation that's about what, how it happened. How does a, a good minister not know or do anything about these conflicts? Well, that's the inexplicable thing. No one knows. I mean, one former minister told me Michael Wood was one of those people who was annoyingly meticulous about everything, you know. But on this, no. I mean, the one theory I've seen put forward, talking to someone, was that maybe because he's on the left of the Labour Party, trade union background, maybe he's embarrassed about having shares. I mean, that's kind of a capitalist. And quite a lot of shares. And, And so just pushed it away to a side. One person told me that Michael Wood was someone who compartmentalised things and maybe he just put it over there. I don't have them because I'm a left-wing... And, and I don't know, but it's... Look, no-one really knows. There's, but again, the other thing, no-one no one thinks he was doing it for any actual pecuniary gain. I mean, this <laughs> is the thing. That makes it worse. I, why, you know, why didn't he sort that out? Do you think he might have a hidden Tesla somewhere? Anyway, <laughs> I'll get to that soon. Um, now, <laughs> I want to introduce now the Ming Foon debacle. Well, if you, if you add that in, and Labour are looking like a completely dysfunctional government. Now, uh, here's a quote from Peter Dunn. He called it a cavalcade of chaos. You can't argue now, can you? Oh, it's great alliteration. Look, it's, not, it's, it's, it's a terrible look. Um, and... But in, so, that so caval- in that cavalcade of Speechless, chaos, though, even. you know, 
government is still going on, you know, and they're still announcing things, they're still doing things. But Yeah, what they're announcing is another minister's been sacked. Yeah. You're going to talk about the polls, right? I Go, am. Get, get to them and then we can carry on this okay, conversation. Well, <laughs> which brings me to the latest. Talbot Mills. Recession, all this stuff with ministers and conflicts of interest, costs of living and still, still... Labour are lifting in the polls. How? Yeah, I mean, look, if you pulled all that together, you know, recession, inflation... I just did. And all these ministerial mishaps, or if you want to call them that, I mean, Labour ought to be out the back door, you know, you'd think. And National just doesn't seem to be able to get ahead. Now, why is that? Maybe it's... Well, why is that? Well, maybe it's because... While those of us intently interested in politics look at some of these matters and think that's terrible, maybe the public don't view it the same way. Oh, you mean the old Beltway thing? Yeah, the old Beltway thing. So maybe the public don't view it the same way. The questions, obviously, I think you'll probably ask me about leadership, right, and whether Christopher Luxon doesn't seem to be really, really... Oh, I was going to get to that. Oh, do you want to ask that question? Sorry, I've... I've... Oh, hang on, where is it? Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Is Luxon safe? Look, I think he is safe, but he's clearly not resonating with the public. With the polls, when they ask, go into the questions of leadership, he, he's still lagging behind. Chris. Well, he's not only lagging, he's going he, in the wrong direction. And and when they ask questions about trustworthiness and all those other words they use, he tends to come off negatively. But having said that, before he was leader, National was polling in the 20s. Now they poll well into the 30s and there's still a really good chance that they'll lead the next government. So what do you do? Get rid of them? That brings back all of the stuff that was happening between 2017 and 2020. All of those um, internecine strife and what have you, leadership changes, would re-raise in the public's memory, oh, National is a party at war with itself. And that might put part of be the reason why they're not jumping further ahead, that people still remember all that stuff. Uh, maybe the policies aren't really attracting great voter sort of support. You know, that yes, there's a range of reasons, but um, it does put probably it does put a bit of pressure on the party because they would be expecting to do be be doing better than a they lot are better. given the troubles the government faces. Well, you look at Tesla Gate, Luxon. He was going to buy one, but he bought a scooter instead. So then his wife bought one, but does she work? I don't know. I'm just asking a question. Uh, she claimed the rebate, which she's entitled to do. And then what does Luxon say? It's no one's business except his wife. Stop asking questions about his wife. But isn't his family in his campaign and all of that? Well, his family, he does use his family in his campaign on social media and what have you. He's you know often seen with his wife and that. So he does promote it. And, and that's a difficulty for political leaders when you use your family publicly and then say, keep my family out of it. But of course... You know, the problem for him is that word hypocrisy. If you're going to attack the policy around clean cards and all that, why would you then use it uh, yourself for your own personal Particularly, gain? as he said, it's just for millionaires who can afford to pay yeah. it. So it's not a great look in some news media. Yet again, not a really. great look. Another week after another week after another week. Yeah, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know how much necessarily voters are, you know, paying attention to that. Um, you know, many of them might think, well, good on you. I mean, even though you disagree with the policy, it's yeah. there, so why wouldn't you well, take it? I mean, yeah. you know, people disagree with tax, but they pay tax, or they disagree with, you know, so, so I mean, he might, he might it, again, it might be much more a uh, political thing here, the, um, the media here, the press gallery jump on it and see it as a big thing. 
may not resonate as much with the public, possibly. I yeah. don't know. It, yeah. People right. make that judgment. And so we move on to the banking inquiry, which uh, everyone is saying is a waste of time. In fact, uh, Cameron Bagri said this inquiry is limited to personal banking. Uh, and so the areas we have the least competition, otherwise known as the business segment, with less transparency over pricing and the greatest challenges, shifting banks, is not part of the analysis. Ridiculous, he said. Which yeah. means this is pure politicking. Yeah, well, Cameron, he's a former bank economist, so he yeah. probably has a good idea of just what the banks do do in terms yeah. of shutting down competition. Um, well, I think probably it is politics in terms of, you know, announcing it before the election. And because, you know, a lot of people feel that they're being ripped off by their banks. So in terms of numbers, it's the, I guess, retail um, customers of of banks that are... It's just to be more, seen to be do something. But I'm, I'm gonna, look, we had the petrol inquiry. Petrol's dearer than ever. In fact, it's about to be 25 cents dearer. Not if you own a Tesla. Well, no, that's true. Uh, a supermarket inquiry. Dearer than ever. It, it, and now, well, where's the supermarket commissioner? Well, the supermarket... OK, the, the legislation on that passed its third reading on Wednesday night, which that is setting up the commissioner. And so the Commerce Minister, Duncan Webb, is promising that pretty soon they will have a supermarket commissioner oh. in place. And that, hallelujah, we can all look forward to more competition and lower prices. But none of that will happen before the election. No. And who's, who, not, I don't know anyone who thinks prices are going to come down. Why would this banking thing well, be any different? The probably thing is they're not, the prices are not going to come down, but whether it will, will then dampen further increases, that would be the issue. But. Right. All right, let's move on to next week. Parliament's sitting again, and uh, this weekend it's the National Party Conference. Oh, that'll be good. Yeah, well, I guess there'll be a lot of discussion there. But uh, it should be pretty rah-rah because they go into the conference, unlike three years ago, they go into the conference with a real chance that they that National will lead the government after the election. So they should still be pretty uh, pepped up. Uh, it be interesting to see the speech that Christopher Luxon gives on Sunday. Um, and I guess, you know, what the sort of talk will be around the conference, but they've got every reason to be, just as Labor was in its conference a, a couple of weeks or so ago where, you know, the members were, I think, um, understandably pretty buoyant because, again, they too have a good chance of leading the next government based on the polls as they are at the moment. As I keep saying, hung parliament. Uh, Hipkins off to China. Now, now, here's something funny I need to tell you. Brent reckons that um, Hipkins should ask Xi Jinping advice on what to do with errant ministers. <laughs> Well, he might, he, might get, he, might get, he might get some ideas. Yeah, I'm sure he'll get some pretty good ideas. <laughs> that is beehive banter for another week. So far this month, a smorgasbord of scandal. What will be added to the menu in the next seven days? Can't wait. Thanks for watching or listening as usual. We'll see you soon. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The government has released discussion documents proposing changes to the emissions trading scheme and the permanent forestry category. I'm joined by Climate Change Minister James Shaw. Now, a lot of it seems to get down to this debate about whether too many forests are being planted to offset emissions, and that's reducing the incentive to actually cut gross emissions? Yeah, broadly speaking. Uh, the one caveat that I would say to that is that um, within the emissions trading scheme, so the Commission, the Climate Change Commission, have been saying to us for quite a long time now that they're very worried that a, an oversupply of units from forestry 
will cause an imbalance in the early to mid-2030s, which would lead to a, a glut. And of course, that would lead to a you know re reduction or a collapse in the carbon price. That would mean that companies that are polluters would find it very easy, rather than cutting pollution, um, they could just buy cheap forestry offsets. But it would also be really bad for foresters who have invested uh, in uh, the um, in forestry on the basis that there will be a stable and perhaps rising carbon price. So th that is obviously not, uh, you know, conducive to the outcomes that we want from the emissions trading scheme. Woody had a response from the Climate Forestry Association, which says it's going to increase costs for producers and consumers um, and basically destroy the economy. Well, What's your response? Well, my response is, you know, that, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do here is actually to ensure that landowners who have invested in forestry uh, actually have the value of that asset preserved um, because having a glut of units isn't good for them either. Um, and and the other thing uh, that I would say is that a lot of the assumptions that the emissions trading scheme were built on, of course, were in the late 2000s, right? It was developed in 2008, 2009 under the Kyoto Protocol. Quite a lot has changed in the intervening 14, 15 years, including the Paris Agreement. Uh, and so the idea that, um, it, you know, it used to be about... All greenhouse gases are fully fungible. It's about lowest cost abatement anywhere in the world. Net emissions are more important than gross emissions. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Actually, now we know that um, actually reducing the pollution that you stick into the atmosphere in the first place is the most important thing. And we have prioritised that and we want to make sure that the ETS matches that. Uh, we know that domestic action counts. Um, we know that if you just use forestry offsets and you don't cut your pollution, then you, 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 know, you run out of land at some point because you just need more and more and more land to convert to forestry because you're continuing to put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so you know, the, the ETS can't be preserved in amber in its original kind of form. It's got to be able to move with you know, what's happening domestically. It's got to be able to move with the science. It's got to be able to move with international policy as well. But I've also seen arguments from advocates for the ETS saying, well, one of the things, yes, OK, the price of units will go up, mm. but that won't necessarily mean the price of what I pay for whatever good or service will necessarily go up because presumably the idea is that you then get companies cutting their emissions so yeah. they don't have to buy it. Yeah, one, one, of my, one of my great frustrations in this job is I keep seeing this analysis saying... No, if the price of carbon goes up, then you know the price of everything um, will go up. That assumes that the ETS doesn't work and that people don't cut the pollution, don't find ways to reduce their emissions. It sort of assumes that it is just a tax on production and it actually has, you know, makes no difference to behaviour. Well, that would be a complete failure because the whole point uh, is for is to create an incentive for companies to find ways to reduce their emissions, like we had with New Zealand Steel recently, you know, who once the price kind of was getting around the $80 a tonne mark, got into a conversation with government to say, well, how do we transition to a massively lower emission form of steel production uh, in a way that keeps that production onshore, ensures that, you know, all the jobs and all that kind of stuff are preserved, that we have steel, which, you know, let's face it, is a pretty necessary ingredient in modern civilization, uh, and, and so on. But, you know, the, the, the scenario that the Climate Change Commissioner worried about is that the price will collapse and then companies like NZ Steel will just go buy, you know, um, cheap, uh, cheap forestry offsets. So, so is the, are the proposed changes that you're looking at, and, you know, we've 
you're, you're consulting mm. on it, so the decisions haven't been made mm. yet. But it, is it about then sending a clearer message to industry about what it needs to do to cut emissions? Yes, it is. And that's the point of an emissions trading scheme. So what we want to make sure is that it is actually doing the job that it is designed to do, and that is to provide an incentive to companies to cut, to cut pollution. Now, that's important. It is also really important to ensure that we're drawing down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it in forests and by other means. And so what we're saying is we want to make sure that the ETS does that job of incentivising businesses to cut pollution and also continues to support forestry and other means of pulling down CO2 out of the atmosphere. What, what do you hope so? I mean, the um, consultation ends on August 11. I mean, clearly you're not going to have anything in place or decisions made before the election. No, it'll, I mean, be, it'll be really for an incoming government. Yeah. So, so if, And if that incoming government is not a Labour-Green government, I mean much of this will drop away, won't it? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it, it will depend a little bit uh, on the ACT Party, who, you know, kind of want to dismantle the entire policy framework around um, around government and whether an incoming national party would be able to keep ACT in their box on that. But the National Party have committed themselves to the emissions trading scheme. They've also kind of voiced concern about the wholesale conversion of farms to forestry uh, under the emissions trading scheme. Now we're actually dealing with a lot of that stuff already. I wouldn't necessarily anticipate that this is a particularly partisan issue. How important is it to get this right then? I mean, Oh, it's critical. It's absolutely critical that we get it right. I mean, if the, if the Climate Change Commission are correct, then what they are saying is that, you know, within 10 years, uh, in the early part of the 2030s, the ETS will literally stop working. It'll just stop doing what it is designed to do. You'll have landowners, particularly Māori landowners, who will find the value of their investments collapse, uh, and you'll find a, you know, a massive reduction in climate action from companies, you know, that are suddenly going, well, actually, I'm going to stop, you know, bothering with that Ford investment program, um, you know, and, and just switch to buying cheap offsets again, like we did, you know, in the last ten years when the price was last uh, last collapsed under the last national government. In the, in the transition that we're, we're still in, really, but there still will be some cost effects. I mean, how much thought's been given? You know, there's always been to talk about a just transition and how yeah. you help, particularly low-income households cope. Yeah. So that well, in the discussion document does get into this, and I would encourage people to you know to take a look at it. They've sort of said, well, if there was a you know, for example, if the price was around. Um, um, seventy-five dollars. It kind of shows what the impact would be on you know household finances. It is marginal, but it does exist, uh, and that is why the Just Transitions Work Program and the work that we're doing around distributional impacts is really important. The Climate Change Commission have said in their last lot of advice, look, you've got to let the ETS do its job, right, which is to send a price signal to businesses to cut pollution. That's what it's supposed to do. You also need to deal with any of the unintended consequences of that, particularly in relation to the distributional impacts, low-income households and so on and so forth. But that's a separate policy uh, tool, uh, and there are ways of, dealing with, uh, ways of dealing with that, and the government is working through that too, too, too. The problem that we've had over the course of the last kind of decade or so, a bit more than a decade, is that governments have tried to do both in the same policy instrument. They're you know, trying to say, well, we need to send a price signal, but we don't want to send so much of a price signal that it has an impact on household finances. And of course, those two things 
you know, don't there is a point at which those two things don't sit well in the same policy tool. But presumably, though, you, you need to do them complementary. Yes, you know? do. You absolutely do. And so yes. when, when you're looking at this document, the, these discussion documents, you've got work going on then that would sort of sit alongside that in a way in terms of meeting those? Yes, we do. So in the emissions reduction plan that we um, published last May, we committed to a the development of a just transition strategy and work program and so on. You've got you know MSD and Treasury and MB and others who are kind of working on that. The other thing about you know so whilst you know we've got this consultation out now and then we'll have decisions with an incoming government and so on. The actual process of reform, let's say it results in legislative change, you're probably talking about 12 to 18 months. You know just to get through that at the at the minimum. Um, and so the other work programs around how we deal with distributional impacts and support people through the transition, that will happen in parallel as well. So the kind of, although, you know, we outlined kind of four options and, you know, we don't know where we're going to land on that, the actual process of implementing those will take time and it'll be well signalled with industry, it'll be well signalled with communities and so on, uh, and with landowners. And so people will be able to see the connections between you know, that piece of work and the piece of work around, uh, you know, um, impacts on households. James Shaw, thank you for your time. Thank you. Productivity Commission report into breaking the cycle of persistent disadvantage was released this week. Not that many people would know it. Well, let's get to NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. Brent, this got buried this week. Yeah, look, it, it did get buried. There was so much other political news happening. Um, least of which I guess was Michael Wood's resignation um, as a minister. So largely overlooked both politically and really in news media coverage, uh, the Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson did raise, ask one question in, in Parliament or a series of questions on it, but that was about it. Um, didn't see anything actually from ministers on it um, and given that you know reducing child poverty had been a big play for this government, you would have thought they would have responded in some way. Um, it, it might be that they want to take time to consider the report before they do give a response, but normally you would have expected some at least initial response. So, yeah, interesting. Why should we care about it? Well, the Commission's report was it was asked by the government to look basically at persistent disadvantage that, that people faced. And it was in the kind of the, the wider sense of, you know, that that's not just bad for them, but for our wider society and economy, you know. And so it, it did have some restrictions on it, though. It wasn't to look at income issues. So, you know, it was never going to come up, for instance, with a recommendation to to raise incomes or raise benefits or all those sorts of things. So it was, it was more looking at the machinery of government and how that might be improved to deal with, you know, long-standing and persistent levels of, of disadvantage. Um, and so, you know, that, that's what it came up with, the report um, in some ways that people might say is just um, kind of nice-to-haves rather than... But, but actually, it did have some interesting kind of conclusions, I mean, including, and I mean, this is election year, it might seem strange, about the need for cross-party support for actions to actually reduce disadvantage. Mm. Will there be any cross-party support on this? Well, it's hard to say, certainly not in election year, I mean, because obviously... Uh, the Labor has made a big thing of reducing child poverty. 
Uh, so the opposition has tried to make a big thing of its failure to do so, and and you know the and its and its record is patchy. I mean, overall, actually, I think most people agree that it's actually made some improvements, but they're pretty modest. Um, and clearly, uh, with the, the cost of living crisis, a, a lot of people are feeling the pinch, um, perhaps not just those who are seen as, as in poverty. So, you know, that political argument um, will continue. Uh, National in particular will try and drive home through to the election that the government's failed on child poverty, while Labor will be pushing it. So, so there's not likely to be any great agreement between the two parties. One of the interesting things about the Productivity Commission report is that it was it didn't really draw great conclusions and I don't think at times it's been kind of accused of being if you like partisan or ideological but it actually talks about that there are elements of what both successive governments have done that are interesting and worth looking at and doing more of and it really references um, it doesn't use the term but probably what was the social investment approach of, of Bill English so it's and so it's it's not actually it sort of driving a wedge, if you like, between parties. It's trying to pull together a series of things where maybe there could be some agreement about the, certainly about the measurements you put in place and some of the structures you put in place to deal with it. And then the political parties can argue over perhaps some specific policies. Do you raise benefits? Do you raise incomes there by doing this, those sorts of things. So these are issues that can be talked about next week, the following week and the coming oh, months. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, it's not a report that should, I mean, hopefully it won't die this week because it hasn't got a lot of response mm. and that it won't just end up being a minister's doorstop. Um, it, it, and it does have some interesting um, sort of ideas. It talks about, for instance, that we need a Social Inclusion Act to back up the, the Child Poverty Reduction Act. And another piece of legislation, it says, to set up a parliamentary commissioner for future generations. So that would be trying to take into account decisions being made and what the impact are on future generations in terms of you know, intergenerational disadvantage. Brent Edwards, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. NBR columnist Bridget Morton loves the Postal Service and she joins me now to explain why. Now, your column's called Right of Centre and I was reading the column and I thought, have I got the right column? I know. Look, I think it's absolutely, you know, here we've got a postal service that is dying. I have to admit that. You know, it is going somewhere. But I do want to make an argument for the fact that I think we still need a base level of service from New Zealand Post. And I think that means, given that the market is not supplying that, that we're going to have to need some government intervention. And I mean, and look, under the SOE Act, there's always been this provision the government can step in and provide some money for a social service, which is effectively what you're saying, isn't it? That yeah. A social service, particularly for people in more remote rural areas, elderly and others, who rely still on the post because um, they haven't, they're not digi- digital savvy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you need to identify exactly who you're talking about. And generally we are. I think, you know, for the rural sector, it is a big part of creating community. Obviously, we've got more and more as our reliable broadband sort of expands into that era. We're going to have less people reliant on it. And frankly, as I you know, you know, say in the column, we've got an element of just our older people passing on um, with those and the incoming digitally literate you know boomers hopefully stepping up. So I think you know for the most part, this is not something that we need long term to survive. But I think at the moment, when you look across New Zealand, this is something we do need to invest in at least for a while longer. 
But then there'll be a few other sectors that will say, well, if you're going to subsidise that, why don't you subsidise us? You know, I mean, so we, how do you draw the line? Well, I think we've got ultimately lots of networks in which we do invest in. You know, at the moment, the government is investing actually in an EV, you know, charging station um, network across the country so that they can get more EVs, you know, up and running and more people will be able to rely on them for long-term transport. And that's the type of things that we need. We're a small country. We do have to recognise that sometimes a network infrastructure is something that we have to sort of step in and from a government point of view. As I say, I don't think this is a long-term investment. It's not something we're trying to, like, revitalise the uh, New Zealand Post Service and have us all suddenly, you know, sending each other our invoices or long letters rather than just, you know, sending you an email. But I think we do need to make sure it survives at least for, say, the next decade to make sure that these people don't miss out. Now, last week or two has been kind of basically dominated by issues around conflicts of interest. And, and you have a conflict of interest, don't you? Because your dad was a postie. No you? longer. No longer do I have a conflict of interest, and I did declare it. Um, so I am doing better than most people currently. But no, my dad did used to be the real postie. And I think I didn't actually understand, actually, the point of the postal service until I spent a bit of time. You know, dad was a key kind of part of the community as Pete the postie. And I think that re- made me realise how much people rely on it. Now, as I say in the column, it's changed considerably in the sort of 10 years in which my parents owned, you know, the service or the contract for the service, it went from basically being sort of letter deliveries predominantly, or the flats as my dad would call them, which is your sort of A4-sized envelopes, to almost predominantly parcels. And, you know, when I used to go and help out, they had like picnic sets and TVs and bikes and things they're trying to put in the back of the posty vans. So that rural sector has definitely changed and that courier sector needs to change there. But I still think we've got a lot of people relying on the good old-fashioned post network and I think we need to support it. And, but you're particularly worried about the recent increase in... The yeah, the thing that sort of triggered this in my mind was I saw that there was a campaign of about 13 different organisations, quite, quite a wide spectrum, I think particularly, you know, there's grey power, rural women in, within that, talking about the quite hefty um, price rises coming in 1st of July. So, if, you know, our individual stamps, they're going up quite considerably, but the bulk mailing rate is going up by about 30%, which shows that I think it's like about 100% increase in the last five years or something like that, quite extraordinary. And it's those organisations that are sending out you know, the sort of bulk newsletters, the magazines, you know, Grey Power, I think, would probably send out quite a few under this sort of bulk mailing rate. It's going to affect them massively. Interestingly, what I also thought about is the fact that a lot of campaigns, you know, political campaigns were going into the regulated cap, you know, provision. Currently under that cap, you can't send a letter to everyone in the electorate. Under this, you know, thing, it's going to go down even further. So, you know, a lot of people still rely on the post or what comes through the letterbox in terms of finding out what the politicians are doing. I think, you know, for many people, this is going to reduce that chance even further. Richard Morton, thank you for your time. Thanks. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.